This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Well, hello once again. Glad to have you back for us as we're here with the Coin World Podcast. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a great interview for you today with Larry Shepard. You might know uh, him from his service as executive director at the American Numismatic Association. He's uh, been a longtime dealer when he wasn't there at the ANA. And more recently, he's the Bourse chairman for the Central States Numismatic Society. Great to have somebody like that here because there's going to be a lot of insightful comments. And it's always our privilege to uh, speak to individuals like Larry and also to share that information with you. Whenever we find something that we believe our podcast listeners might be interested in, we try to uh, endeavor to get that as part of our content on the podcast. And one of the things that uh, we will share right now is the fact that it's a limited time offer. But our friends at Amos Advantage who help us out with our podcast each and every week, they've got a Labor Day sale going on right now. Not going to get into the details. I invite you to simply go to amosadvantage.com. And that way you can learn more about what's uh, what's available, what's on sale. We are definitely going to be learning some things here today. And I think the learning needs to start right now as let's uh, go back in time a little bit because we're right at a critical juncture in history and in the terms of the year. I mean, it, no matter where you are in the country, things are changing. And when it comes to this time of the year, the calendar starts to change over as we're on the verge of the month of September. So that means some parts of the country, the leaves are going to be changing to different colors and the temperature, the humidity comes from 95% to 93% in Florida. So, you know, it's just the idea of, of change here. So it's t- always good to look back and see how things are. So let's go back in coin world history right now, actually in numismatic history. Let's start there. Well, here we are on the cusp of September. And as you say, kids are going back to school. We're looking at September 4th in as our date in history. And this is, I almost overlooked this. The pickings are slim, but boy, was this an important milestone uh, in U.S. numismatics because it was on September 4th, 1942, that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing delivered the first yellow seal emergency notes to the Treasury Department. Now, these were denominated in uh, $1, $5, and $10 notes. Collectors know that the yellow seal notes uh, are related to the war effort. And, um, you know, the North Africa government uh, military uh, usage, and, and these are so popular and 
boy, has have the prices risen for them over the last, uh, I'd say, five years or more. It's a story piece because it was in November that year that uh, American forces under Patton landed in North Africa, and they carried these emergency issue notes uh, specially produced for the Operation Torch invasion. Uh, the Yellow Seal helped them under the word 10 on the face of the note, made them easily identifiable, readily identifiable, uh, and they could be declared worthless if uh, large quantities fell into enemy hands. They have, like today, Alexander Hamilton portrait on the face. Because of that story, because of their service in wartime, uh, U.S. wartime, that is uh, a milestone that uh, should not go unnoticed. And, you know, it's it's these story pieces that uh, collectors really connect with. I found that to be the case uh, over the weekend last Saturday when I was hanging out at a local shop and I got to meet a young collector named Reed and his father. And Reed, if you're listening, thank you for allowing us to share some of the stories about all these, uh, the, the great items to be found in the hobby. You can put that yellow seal note on your list for maybe when you get a significant sum of uh, birthday money or Christmas money or some other holiday reward. The stories really are the things that matter and um, that's that's why I highlighted that for this week. And I think that's a very touching situation here is, uh, you know, historically, we have so much connection in the numismatic side of things, and especially, you know, paper money has an opportunity there too. So appreciate you sharing that with us. I mean, there's lots of things that we'll be talking about in the future podcast that really uh, will be able to make a connection uh, even you know, now as uh, folks decide what they're going to go down, what journey they're going to take, what path they're going to take and learn more about that. Because you know, truthfully, the yellow, yellow notes are something that I really haven't thought much about, hadn't learned much about. And certainly now my uh, interest is is piqued by that. So uh, let's uh, keep going back in time a little bit. Let's go back to year 2008. And uh, part of the 60, now 61 years of Coin World, we covered a lot of things that happened in the history of, uh, of you know, numismatics. And so 2008 seems like a good stopping point for us for today. So let's just take a look at uh, what you might have to share with us from a past issue of Coin World. Yes, um, we're going back to September 1, 2008 issue. Why 2008? Well, that was the year that Larry Shepard was named executive director of the ANA. And since Mr. Shepard uh, gave some time for the interview, I thought that was a nice connection. What was the, the big story that week? I think in hindsight, it's hilarious. That's why I'm uh, talking about it. And it is above the fold, as we would say in journalism. The top story is that the U.S. Mint increased the direct ship dollar program. Now, what was that program? That program allowed collectors to buy $250 face value of presidential dollars. And you would pay face value for the coins. Um, so you'd get a $250 box and it was $250. You did not have to pay shipping. And um, at some point within the year or two that that was offered, 
folks got wise to this and decided that they were going to buy thousands and thousands of dollars of dollar coins and get them shipped free to them. And then they would just immediately take them to the bank and deposit them so they could pay off their credit card bill. Now, what would that do? Well, that would earn you airline miles or credit card rewards programs. And the U.S. Mint ate the fees on that. Now, granted, there's seniorage. There's, uh, you know, the money that the government makes uh, from the difference between the face value and the cost to make the coin. But uh, this enterprising uh, way to get free trips and all that, I mean, gosh, you could you could buy $10,000 of coins a month and in a year have a couple free trips to London or a, a free trip to Australia or Asia. The Mint decided, well, we have to put the brakes on this program. And I just wish I had thought of the uh, taking advantage of the program that way. Um, but I wasn't tuned into the, the miles and the rewards and all that then. So that, that like I say, it's funny to me in hindsight because, you know, it was, it was a good idea in theory uh, because, you know, they wanted to get the dollar coins out to the masses. But... Uh, it um, left a little egg on their face when folks abused it. So that's the big news from this story. What jumped out to you, Larry, in the letters? Well, actually, before I got to the letters page, I stopped through some of the other pages and I noticed a, um, a story about a lawsuit that was thrown out that a uh, gentleman was asking that in addition to what we accept as the president, starting with George Washington, John oh, Adams yeah. <laughs> down there, and that the uh, they he had requested that the 10 presidents under the Articles of Confederation be recognized and that the first spouses be recognized as well. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. And then I scrolled by some of the ads and saw that Eagles were being sold for $29.50. But on the letters page itself, there are, of course, a handful of letters. But an interesting part, and this one says, are you aware? And it's a little factoid that I want to share because I thought this was really neat. Uh, it's got a little connection to me with having a uh, stepson currently stationed in Alaska. But it says, Bingles are tokens issued by the U.S. government for use by settlers of the Matanuska Valley Colonization Project in Alaska to provide them with needed federal aid. The eight different tokens were redeemable only at stores of the Alaska Rural Rehabilitation Corporation. The tokens in one cent, five cent, ten cent, twenty-five cent, fifty cent, one dollar, five dollar, and ten dollar denominations were used for six months between 1935 and 36, then redeemed for regular U.S. currency. All are round except the cent, which is octagonal in shape. Bingles are sized to match coins of corresponding value, except the cent, the $5, and the $10. Well, of course, this was before Alaska became a state. And, uh, you know, just kind of the historical significance of that right there. This is something that there are only, you know, six, eight different denominations. And that'd be something to really get my hands around. So, uh, you know, it'd be something to get one of those from my, my dad was born in 35. So a little more significance there. Uh, just little uh, things that resonate on that. But those were found on the letters page. Let, let me straighten you out a little bit, though, because uh, those are in the Red Book and those are not cheap. In 1985, for the 50th anniversary, uh, restrikes were made. And even a set of restrikes is a few hundred dollars. Yeah. So, so, I, so I don't mean to. So what's your point? <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so what's your point here? So you're going to have to um, search quite a while to find them. And there's uh, no problem. I mean, I'm still looking for state quarters and still looking for all these different, uh, you know, different things that I need for some of these collections. And it seems that like I start like 15 different collections and, uh, you know, never get them finished. But that's just uh, that's hey. just the way it goes. Well, I'm glad you pointed out that it's in the Red Book. So now I'm going to look at it and see if I can uh, see if I can find something and uh, take a look at the values here on that. Uh, yeah. yeah, just uh, page 1352. Oh, here we go. Um, yeah. Oh, just an EF condition. The one cent, ninety dollars. The five cent, ninety dollars. Let's see, two seventy four oh five. Um, no, you're right. Maybe I better pursue something else. I think the one cent would be neat just because it's octagonal and yes, affordable. So, I mean, that's almost like a trivia question that you just asked. But uh, I think now that you've given us that bit of information, I should follow up to last week's trivia question. Okay. So last week, because we spoke to Carrie Richardson about uh, Japanese wartime issue, I wanted to know about a, class of paper money that was used in Japan during World War II. This was for use by the military. This was issued by the Japanese military authority as a replacement for local currency after the conquest of colonies and other states in World War II. There's a three-word term to describe this class of paper money. What is that called? Well, it's kind of interesting that uh, you asked that question because I had an opportunity to bid on one from uh, the Japanese government issued this rupee note in Burma. Uh, It was an occupation. So I think it's called Japanese invasion money. Is that what it's called? You are correct. And so the abbreviation is JIM. JIM. Huh. Creative. Invasion money. No, sure. I got outbid on that, but uh, it was an interesting, uh, interesting piece because it was uh, Japanese government issued in for the occupation of Burma, and that's uh, here again. Just looking at it and seeing the uh, the the designs on it, it was kind of a neat piece. I can understand where there'd be the attraction for it. Yeah, so it's a fun little area, very affordable. There's millions of the notes out there. Go look at it. It's it's something worth considering again for a World War II themed collection. Now, because we're talking to Larry Shepard, who was uh, executive director of the ANA, I'm going to ask a procedural question, sort of a, a um, this is not a, you know, how many stars are on this coin or that or whatever. Uh, but the ANA has a museum. And probably the highlight of the museum is a blank collection of blank, blank, blank. So, uh, and those aren't, uh, I'm not voiding out, um, you know, curse words, but um, what what is the collection that is in the ANA Museum that, um, you know, is famously a centerpiece to the ANA Museum and, and what um, what's in there? I don't want to say any further because that might give you too many hints, but... Um, uh, very easy, very, you know, beginner level question, I think. I think. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and if it's too hard, then uh, then I will adjust my declaration accordingly. Fair enough? Oh, sounds fair to me. 
I mean, I think that uh, you know, I think it's a very fair question, as a matter of fact. And if you don't know, it's something you should learn because uh, definitely um, in the expansion of your education and knowledge. I mean, the ANA does offer a lot of a lot of opportunity there, and I look forward to the day when I actually set foot in uh, that particular place out in Colorado Springs. But uh, now is a good time as we ponder on this trivia question that we take our attention over to the uh, interview that we had. Uh, with Larry Shepard, who's with the CSNS now, former executive director of the ANA. And he gives us a little bit of insight into some things you may not have think about. And then you may think about this the next time you visit your local coin show or convention. A lot to think about, not, not a little to think about, but here's that interview. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Larry Shepard, who is a well-known and longtime dealer, as well as more recently sliding into the Bourse Chairman role for the Central States Numismatic Society. And of course, uh, you may know him from his time as Executive Director of the American Numismatic Association. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. No, we're, we're delighted because, you know, now that shows are getting back and, you know, we're, we're sort of tentative, tentatively moving uh, forward with uh, life again and all that. We're trying to get a sense of, you know, what the show landscape looks like. How are you guys handling all the um, you, you get pulled in all sorts of directions, all the demands of running a show um, and, you know, you're gearing up for a show in Schaumburg next, I believe, April. Uh, how is that going right now? Well, it's going very well. Of course, we, we, we had to cancel the last two shows in 2020 and, and in 2021. So we have um, a significant number of table holders who are, who are carrying over from the previous shows. So that gives us a head start on, on selling out our tables and preparing. Uh, so we have another eight months before before that show comes along uh we're actually looking now at the possibility of um or the likelihood actually uh of expanding the floor space there because we anticipate significantly more demand than uh than we've had in the past and uh, i i visited uh, along with uh, central states president mitch ernst with the convention center and the hotel uh, last week, while we we're at the ANA convention, the two the two convention centers are only thirteen miles apart. So we uh, visited with uh, the hotel and the convention center to uh, look over the facilities and get a better feel of how we can better utilize it. We don't believe we have uh, maximized the utilization of our center in the past. Uh, either in terms of the Bors area or the uh, the potential utilization of the meeting rooms to have uh, interesting things going on uh, off the Bors. Uh, we can expand the show from where it has, has been in the last th uh, several years, of around 300 tables. We actually could expand the, the show to well over 400 tables and uh that's what we uh what we're anticipating doing right now we're we're fairly close to a sellout as the floor stands right now so if we if we um if we didn't expand the worst area we would probably have our all of our tables sold by the end of this year uh and and as you guys probably know uh it, with large coin shows a lot of dealers wait till the last a uh, few weeks or the last month to make a decision on the show. So 
you typically get a flurry of, of table applicants in those last uh, four to six weeks before the show, or sometimes even in the last two weeks. So we don't want to be in the position where we're already completely sold out before that happens. And uh, so we will, we will expand our capability and we're looking forward to having a great show next year. There's a lot of demand. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of um, excitement about it. We have a lot of new relationships and connections at central states that we haven't had in the past. Uh, since I took over the show last year, we've added uh uh, we've renewed our contract with Heritage Auctions. We've taken on a new auction contract with Legend Auctions. The uh, PNG has moved their dealer day from the Aeneas show in the summer to to Central States. So we have that relationship going on, and um, we're about to announce a uh, a significant relationship uh, with a major rating service uh, that I won't go into the details right now because we're. Uh, we're not ready to make that announcement, but uh, th this is going to be a very, very significant uh, relationship for central states. It's certainly a very significant feather in our cap that a major grading service is going to perform some of the functions with us that uh, we anticipate. So we're very excited about our convention for next year. We think it's going to be great. Well, I'll tell you one thing. That just gives us an opportunity to say... Stay tuned to the Coin World podcast and also to the pages <laughs> of Coin World where we're going to have that news and information to pass along there. Yes. I would have uh, to think uh, that when you paid a visit to the venue after uh, your time over at the ANA and you went to Schomburg, I would have to think that the partners that are involved in the upcoming uh, CSNS show are just as excited about the prospect of you returning as all of our, our numismatists are. I think, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that... Uh, the excitement is not just among the dealer community, but also among the collector community. I think you know, you're going to see a newer, uh, a new central states. Uh, we have a, a motto of newer, bigger, better, and friendlier, and and that's not just a motto. Those are all things that are very meaningful to me as, as head of the convention and things that I want to implement. It's it's meaningful to our board members, to our president uh, Ernst. Uh, we are really committed to um, to uh, performing on all four of those uh, those avenues. For the lack of a better way to say this, what does that mean? I mean, how is the show going to look different? You know, if somebody's been to a central state, say 2019 was the last one. If they went to that one and then they go to 2022, what are they going to see differently? What's um. You know, we know that there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that matters, certainly with dealer interaction and other things. But, you know, if you just walk in as a collector, how is it going to look different? Well, I think the first thing you're going to see when you walk in, uh, when you walk through the doors of the convention center, you're going to see something that looks very familiar in terms of the registration area and so forth. But once you walk past that and go into the uh, doors of the convention center there the boars area you're going to see a much larger uh boars area hopefully it's going to be laid out better and hopefully it'll have better signage and a lot more activity we will uh, we will break up areas with signage for example to put uh a certain type of collectibles together as opposed to just having them spread all across the floor. There will be a currency section. There will be a world and ancient section as well as the U as the U S section. And we're actually anticipating or considering, I should say a, a couple of other possible sections. Uh, we're even considering having um, 
um, certain areas for bullion and, and, and things like that. So hopefully we can direct collectors more to their needs and their interest uh, without them have to spend half their day just searching around and seeing what's there and what's, uh, what's where on the floor. As you walk into a show as a collector, you, you can't really get the uh, feel for the length and the breadth of the work that had to go together to put a show together. About how many people are generally involved in creating a show like the one you we're going to have in April? Well, it depends on, on the show. The, um, the American Numismatic Association, for example, has a large staff. They have approximately 30 employees. And, and, and I know from my experience there that just about all of those people get involved uh, throughout the year in working on aspects of the show. You are absolutely correct that the amount of work that goes into one of these shows is, is probably uh, 10 times what the average collector or even the average dealer would think. Uh, there isn't a day of the week, and I guarantee you, even when I'm on vacation or taking some time off, there isn't a day of the week during the year that I'm not thinking about this or I'm working on something for that show. And I know that seems mind-boggling to think about a, a three- or four-day show taking that much time and that much planning and that much effort. But, uh, but I guarantee you it does. It takes, it takes quite a bit. In the case of Central States, we don't have a large paid staff uh, such as the ANA has, but we do have uh, the involvement of several people. I'm, I'm actually in the position right now of recruiting some people, and, uh, and obviously we also try to recruit volunteers to help us out. Um, so it takes, it takes quite a few people. I can't precisely put a number on it. I would say that there's probably, between volunteers and, and staff members, there's probably 40 or 50 people who get involved in, the, in an ANA show. I would say in the case of our show, Central States, uh, it's probably uh, 15 to 20. Fun show, the same type of thing. A lot, a lot of, there's paid staff and then there's also just an army, of, an army of volunteers. It really does take a lot of people to pull it off correctly. Now, uh, you know, you mentioned that, I mean, I guess I mentioned that it's the show's in Schaumburg, and then you, you uh, cited the proximity to Rosemont, where the ANA seems to have, you know, in the last decade made that the second home of the ANA. Uh, and you're expanding, looking at expanding the Bourse in Schaumburg. Is this um, sort of going to compete with ANA? Does the fact that the ANA has so many shows there uh, is that going to help or hurt or how, how does that, what's explain that dynamic? Because I know a lot of people, well, uh, we well, get first into of the all, whys, but you right. know, there's a lot of people go, Oh, Chicago again, even though, you know, it's yeah. urban Chicago. Um, what's, uh, you know, we, what are some reasons behind that and, and, and all that too? So. Well, Central States is primarily a Midwestern organization, and we actually were at Schaumburg before the ANA moved to Rosemont, so it's it's not the other way around. But that's not the point. It's not a competing situation. I mean, I wish the ANA best of luck in their shows. I actually wrote something last week where I was highly complimentary of their of the work they did on putting on such a great show under such difficult circumstances. I don't view any of our um, the other major shows, the Fun Show, the Baltimore Show, the Long show ANA and so forth as competitors I think we're all out there working for the betterment of the hobby and I think that's the way it should be now in terms of central states we don't have the flexibility of going all around the nation that uh, say the ANA does we're more like the fun show where um, 
we're, we're obviously, our show has to be held within the limits of our geographic region. And there, there we're more limited on where we can actually place our show. Now, I will, you know, if it's okay with you, I'll get into something here that, uh, that I think is one of the great misperceptions that is around in the numismatic community and has been around for as long as I've been involved in the show circuit, which is 35 years. And I will have to tell you that for many years as a dealer prior to me going to DNA, uh, I shared many of those misperceptions. And it's because most collectors and most dealers never really get involved in uh, the components that make up a selection of a, of a convention area. Yeah, go um, ahead. I mean, that's why you're here. <laughs> right. Um, well, first of all, let me start with a little background that may surprise everyone who's listening to this, because my guess is that I'm, I'm about to uh, I'm about to lay out something that probably not more than uh, one out of a hundred has really thought about. We use the term when we talk about these events like the ANA or like Central States. We use the terms convention and coin show um, synonymously. We refer to it. Uh, we refer to Central States as having the 82nd annual convention next year, but we also talk about the Central States show. The ANA does the same thing. Uh, the ANA the ANA refers to the to their meeting as a convention, but they also refers to it as the World's Fair of Money show. Actually, those are two separate events, and this is where I I, I mean that most people I don't think ever think about it this way. Those are two separate events. One is a convention. The other is a coin show. You can have a convention without a coin show, and you can have a coin show without a convention. All you have to do is look at the successful shows like in Baltimore and uh, the Whitman show in Baltimore and the uh, Long Beach show, uh, which, are, which while they do have meetings and educational programs and so forth, those are basically coin shows. And uh, so, because there's not a there's not a a Baltimore organization, for example, that has its convention, uh, so you can have very successful coin shows without a convention. You also can have a very successful convention without a coin show. And here's where the rub comes in: uh, when you every two years, when you read the uh, candidates' announcements for the ANA Board of Governors or for the Central States Boards of Board of Governors, the candidates who weigh in and talk about what they'd like to accomplish if they're elected usually come from the collector side of the organization. Therefore, they're, they're more oriented in many ways to the convention aspect as opposed to the coin show. So in other words, a, a convention is the social side of it where you get together, you have meetings, you have club meetings, you have educational programs, you hand out awards, maybe you have a banquet, and you pin ribbons on each other, and it's a great social gathering. Now, you can have that, uh, that type of a meeting in any one of probably 150 to 200 different cities in America. You could have it in Sydney, Ohio, if you wanted to, and, and uh, near the Coin World headquarters, or you could have it in St. Augustine, Florida, or Jackson, Wyoming. Uh, but you couldn't have a major coin show in any of those cities. So when, when we hear the candidates say, well, one of, my, one of my objectives is we need to move these shows around to more interesting places and move them around to other areas of the country to be more fair to our members. Well, those are admirable objectives, but they're not realistic. You can't really do that. And um, you can have your convention in any of those spots. But you can't have a major coin show in any of those spots. 
most collectors again, and, and quite frankly, I've, I've seen it on the ANA board. I've seen it on other boards. Uh, they don't seem to understand that the dealers pay for those organizations. You wouldn't have the great large organizations without the income from the coin show and, and the, the dealers paying for the tables. If in, in a lot of, a lot of people don't like to acknowledge that there's an anti-dealer sentiment among some people who run for various boards and they don't like to acknowledge that, that the organization is dependent on the dealers. But I can tell you firsthand, the ANA would be a, would be an organization with seven, eight, seven or eight employees. If it didn't have a, its coin shows, central States would just be a club if it didn't have its coin show. So you're very dependent upon the dealers and that puts upon you a requirement that if you're going, if you're going to ask the dealers to spend substantial amounts of money, $1,000, $1,500, $2,000 for a single table at a show. And many dealers have four five and six tables. Uh, they're making a huge commitment in that show. And that commitment is really uh, important and necessary for the viability of your organization. Well, if they're making that type of an investment, you have a requirement to be fair to those dealers, to, to put them in a location that provides them with the best opportunity to make a return on that investment. And consequently, that means you, you, you can't put a, a, a big coin show in Spokane, Washington, or Fargo, North Dakota, or, or somewhere like that, because it's not going to draw the dealers, and it's not going to draw the collectors that the dealers need to make that show worthwhile. So the very first thing you're going to look at when you're looking to where to go for a coin show is you want to look at a large, where there are, where there are large collector bases. There are certain areas of the country that are that have a large collector base the northeast um, the midwest ohio michigan illinois so forth texas california and so forth but there are also other many large areas of the country where the collector base is very sparse i like to look at it as put a put the point of a compass on a city and draw a circle that would represent how the distance that it would take five hours to drive into that city. I think that's the maximum drive-in range for most people. Actually, many, many people probably would not drive in more than three hours or so, but I've always used five hours. And you want to look at what the collector base is within that, because that's very important for the people who want to drive into the show. Similarly, it's really critically important that the city have a good airport. There are many large, nice, large cities in America that have uh, the demographics of a lot of people. They're in a collector area, but their airports are not really very amenable to the dealers coming in or collectors flying in. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, you, need, you need airports that have a lot of direct flights. You also need airports that have that utilize uh, primarily large jets because it's critically important for the dealer community that the planes that they have to take into the airport have large overhead uh, racks and have large areas under the seats because dealers have to carry their coins on the airplane. You cannot stow coin cases carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars of coins, or in some cases, millions of dollars of coins, you cannot hand those over to baggage handlers to put them under the, under the, um, 
the belly of the plane. First of all, that would be highly irresponsible. Second of all, it would be a violation of your insurance contract. So you have to be able to walk on the plane with something that meets the guidelines of the airline and stow those coins on the plane. The small jets, the ones that only have four or five seats across, that service a lot of, uh, of cities, uh, don't work very well because the, the overhead racks are, are, are narrow. You can't get your large cases up there. The space beneath the seats is small. You can't get your large cases left. So these are things that people never really think about. But if you're a coin dealer, those are really critically important things, and you do think about that. So if, you, if, if, a, if you're a show provider and you announce you're going to have a, sit, a show in one of those cities, you're going to find that it's very difficult to sell tables for that show when the dealers realize that uh, they would have to take a small jet uh, to get there. So typically the first two steps that I would take in looking at a, at a city, if I was looking at the entire nation, is I would draw the five-hour circles. I would mark the, the areas that have a big collector base. And for most organizations, for example, like the ANA, you know where the collectors are because you know where you have membership. And so you know where the concentrations of members are. And, um, and then you, you draw the circles and then you, you overlay that map with a, with a map where you've circled the good airports, the really good airports in the city, in the, in the country, Chicago being the best, Atlanta, Denver, Los Angeles, and so forth. And you look for where you've got circles that, that intersect. That becomes your primary uh, basis for the cities you're looking at. Now, it's not that simple, though. And again, here's, a, here's misperception number two. Most collectors and most dealers think that, that creating a show is just as simple as picking up the phone and calling a convention center and reserving a convention center for two years or three years or four years out. Most of, most of the big conventions are three or four years out, but it's not like that. It's not like reserving a hotel room. It's not like making a reservation at a restaurant. You call those convention centers, and you're not, you're not going to select them. They're going to select you, and that's, that's the rude awakening if you've never been through this process before. Uh, they're not going to say, oh, yes, I have the third week of August available in 2025 at a, rent, at a rental of $125,000, and you can say yes or no. It doesn't work that way. They're immediately going to start asking you questions. How many people are you going to bring to town? Uh, what would you estimate being the number of hotel rooms you're going to you, occupy during that time period? Because most large city convention centers are owned by the city or they're owned by an economic arm of the city. And their purpose is not to uh, make money on rent. They Realistically, even though the rents are very high and they're exorbitant in some cases, the, the rent is secondary. What's really important to the convention center are the, what I, the conditions I just said. How many people are you going to bring town into town who are going to spend money at night uh, booking reservations at the, at the uh, fancy restaurants, going to the attractions in the city, uh, and so forth, uh, getting into taxis, doing other things that spread money around the city. But most importantly, how many, can, how many hotel room nights? And if you call a large city like Washington, I mean, a, a very popular city like Washington, D.C. or San Francisco and say you're the American Numismatic Association or your Central States Numismatics, 
And they say, how many hotel rooms would you anticipate uh, you're going to need for your convention? You say, 2,000. They're going to go, <laughs> we'll put you on our list of 100 names. Uh, you will be number, let's see, uh, 101. Okay. Because uh, they're, looking for, they're looking for conventions that bring in 30 or 40,000 hotel room nights. That means there's a convention of six or 7,000 people uh, or more. Uh, and if you, can't, if you can't generate that, you're going to go to the bottom of the list. So consequently, all those people who every year say, oh, we need to have a convention in Washington, D.C., well, forget it. It's never going to happen. You're, not, you're never going to have a convention in the Washington, D.C. Uh, main convention center. Now, maybe you could have a smaller one somewhere in the peripheral area, like Arlington or somewhere like that. But you're never going to have a show in the main in the in the main convention center at Washington. You could say the same thing about uh, popular major cities like San Francisco, Boston, New York, and so forth. Uh, it really comes down to where you where you rack up uh, compared to other people calling convention centers looking for space. And the other thing is that not every space in a convention center is open every year. Uh, most convention centers have a group of clients who come back year after year. Just think in our business, think about uh, the Whitman Baltimore show. Well, they're there three times in that convention center every year. Think about the Long Beach show. They're there three times in that, in that convention center every year. So those spaces are not going to become available. And you multiply that by 20 or 30 or 40. Uh, conventions that come back to those same locations every year. And what you might find is that uh, either the convention center, even, even if you would meet their requirements, they don't have an opening or you might have an opening once every two or three years, uh, something along those lines. So, so they have to want you. It's not a matter of we want them. And that's where it gets, it gets very, very dicey in terms of where you can go. Now, Here's misperception number three. The average coin dealer, and I was as guilty of this uh, for many years as, as everybody else, thinks that when we, the convention promoters, are constantly pushing, so to speak, our, the hotel room, the host hotels, and we're practically begging people to make reservations in those host hotels as opposed to getting on the internet and shopping for 20 miles around to get the lowest possible rate. Most dealers think that we do that because we're getting rebates or kickbacks from that hotel. That's absolutely incorrect. It's not, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I was guilty of thinking that. And I know most of my dealer peers at that point in time were guilty of that. And I know many dealers think that today. It isn't, that's not the case. The reason we push our hotel rooms is that, as I mentioned to you, that uh, rent is secondary to these convention centers. The real important criteria for them allowing you to use their convention center are the number of hotel room nights you can guarantee. The operative word there is guarantee, not offer. It's one thing to say, well, we think we can rent 2,000 nights. It's another thing to say, we'll guarantee you 2,000 nights. And what that means is when they look at your statistics, of how many people you bring to you bring to town, they're going to come back to you and say, "We want X dollars." If we if they are willing to to lease you the space, they're going to say, "We want X dollars in rent, and we want you to guarantee X thousands of new of room nights." 
And when they say guarantee, they mean it. In other words, that means for every dealer who their reservation at the host hotel and moves to the uh, Motel 6, the coin show is vulnerable to having to pay for that room because you've guaranteed it if you can't rent it back out. And that becomes a huge liability for large organizations like the ANA or like Central State. You're, you're literally talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in certain some cases of contingent liability if you cannot sell your hotel rooms to the quantity that you have guaranteed. I want to jump in and um, I hate yes, to- I was just finishing anyway, so go ahead. I hate to interrupt the filibuster, but I, I do, that, that raises a question. What is the, the liability? What does that look like in, in real dollars for, you know, I, I don't know if you if you can speak to the ANA or the central states, but what kind of money are we talking well, for central states, the liability would be about three hundred thousand dollars. For the ANA, it's much larger than that. Okay. Uh, you, so you know, you may be talking a million dollars or or something in the, in that range. So, so you you're familiar with the New York International, probably, and um, yes, one of the things they do for booth holders is, you know, they give you a rebate if you stay at the host hotel. And, you know, they factor that into to the whole situation. Uh, is there not uh, the possibility to, to adopt that sort of reward system, carrot and stick, to get people to stay uh, where you've uh, contractually obligated to, to fill the rooms? Well, Central States has used that type of carrot and stick in the past because uh, the, the same person who runs the New York International is the person who used to run yeah. Central States. So we have, you know, our organization has used that type of carrot stick. But the thing you have to keep in mind is that eventually the collector or the dealer pays one way or another. You can play games with putting a little bit over here, a little bit over there, or give and take here or there, but it all comes down to the same thing, that you, you have the same financial situation. So maybe you, maybe you draw in more rooms that way, but at the same time, you have a huge liability of having to pay for that. Uh, we have analyzed that and decided that that is not a system that economically makes sense for us. Okay. And by the same token, then the question becomes, is conducting a show, conducting a convention or a coin show, is it a profitable activity or is it just as just to benefit the hobby? Well, we, you have both nonprofit organizations like the ANA, several states and the fun show that we're not there to make profit. Obviously, we may we hope to make what you would call a profit on paper, but it's not a profit that goes in back into the pockets of investors or um, uh, the organization. Uh, basically, that profit, we aim to make a profit so that we can plow that money back into the hobby. I mean, that's why we exist. We're, we're here to benefit the hobby, and to do that, you have to make money. And so we use the coin show, hopefully, to make money that we can plow back into educational initiatives or, or promoting the hobby. Now, on the other hand, there are also major coin shows that are for-profit uh, organizations, the Long Beach Show, for example, which is owned by PCGS or Collectors Universe, uh, and say the Whitman Baltimore Show, which is owned by Whitman. Um, those are regular corporations who endeavor to to make a profit off off of their shows. 
neither one is as good or better or worse than the other one. I'm just saying that those are the two differentiations. The coin shows are not nearly as profitable as a lot of people think because the expenses are great and also because you face the huge liability on the on the hotel rooms. Uh, I just recently wrote something and we're going and we will publish it in our upcoming magazine for our next magazine for several states talking about the economics of coin shows. And again, I guess this would be my misperception number four. A lot of dealers think that uh, we make a lot of money off of the coin shows. It's not that easy because they have no idea. And, and, and every time I show these numbers to someone, they're just flabbergasted by the numbers. The reality is that the numismatic world has operated in a slow growth mode over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, whereas the rest of the world has operated in a, in a high growth mode. And so consequently, the cost of putting on conventions, the cost of hotel rooms, and so forth, has outpaced the growth of the numismatic world. There's nothing we can do to change that. We can't say, well, things aren't that robust in the numismatic world, but we can't afford to pay for those price increases. You have two choices. Either pay for it or you don't have a show. And so uh, we're competing against, in many cases, large corporations that have you know, huge budgets where cost is no initiative and and uh, where the people who come to that convention are largely on an expense account for being paid by their company. Mm -hmm. So they're not out shopping around for a cheaper hotel room. They get their application, they check the box, says, I want to be at the higher agency and whatever the price is because their corporation's paying for it. And so that puts us at a tremendous uh, economic disadvantage. Now, when I talk about when, about the uh, them not being uh, the shows not being that as profitable as most people think, I know dealers are always complaining about the high price of tables. Well, we're not trying to gouge anyone. We're trying to make sure that our organization stays uh, stays liquid and stays solvent, and that we have something left over to um, to go towards our mission. I mentioned in the in the write up uh, that I did last last week that will go in our magazine that. Probably this is this is the first time in history anybody's ever been transparent with these costs. Now I honestly don't know why they haven't been more transparent with these costs in the past, but I have no problem telling you what it costs. In Schomburg, it costs us seventy-eight thousand dollars to rent the convention center floor for one week. We also have to guarantee about three hundred thousand dollars worth of worth of hotel rooms. Once you have the convention floor, all you have is just a big gymnasium, basically, with nothing on the floor, concrete floor, and uh, there, there's nothing between the walls. So that means you have, to, you have to hire what we call a decorator to come in and set up all the booths, uh, set up all the furnishings, all the, all the um, signage, and so forth. That costs us another $80,000. It costs us $34,000 a year for a contract to supply electricity for the floor, believe it or not, 34000 for one week. And that's overhead lamps and the, uh, electric, the electric cords for your, uh, your lights at your table. Now, we're very fortunate at Schaumburg. And one of the reasons we're at Schaumburg and not at Rosemont is uh, one is a union facility, the other is a non-union facility. Uh, I don't want to get into the politics of union versus non-union, but 
clearly there's an economic difference. If you're at a union facility, those costs are are hugely higher than uh, in a in a non-union facility. I can remember one coin show 25 years ago. Well, this is in mid 1990 dollars, not in terms of current dollars, where we were being charged uh, 54 dollars per extension cord to have a union electrician plug our extension cord into the into the uh, electric box and and we weren't allowed to do it ourselves we had to have that done well those are the types of things when you talk about thousands hundreds if not thousands of electrical cords being plugged in over the over a coin show can make a huge difference so actually if we were in a an east coast facility where all the uh, uh, convention centers are heavily unionized, or downtown Chicago, uh, or certain other places on the West Coast. Our costs would be massively higher than uh, than what we currently pay. But even as it is, as I said, we pay seventy eight thousand for rent. We pay eighty thousand to have the decoration. We pay thirty four thousand for electricity, and then we have a, a bunch of other costs that most people never think about that go into those shows. Uh, transit and setup of your of your uh, showcases and so forth, all those things run into the thousands of dollars. And in the article that, that uh, I'm about to publish, I said that our average cost of setting up a show uh, a show table uh, in Schomburg is approximately eight hundred and sixty six dollars per regular table. Now that I'm sure that shocks most people because all you're seeing is a bunch of iron bars and and um, curtains and so forth and, and it certainly doesn't have the appearance of 866 dollars but whether whether it looks like it should be or isn't is not the matter the point is that's what it costs and so we have to pass those costs along when dealers complain why can't you have economy tables that for 350 dollars well that's why you can't have economy tables for 350 dollars it costs us far more than that to set those tables up so this is all some really good information. And um, I think for somebody who's really not tuned into it, you know, at that level, they haven't been on that, the other side of the table or whatever. It, it's good to hear this. I, I like to be contrarian. So I'm going to, my last question, or maybe our, our last question is because you, a lot of this seems to be from a national perspective. And I appreciate that, you know, the central States is uh, eight or 13 States, something like that. Are the shows too big? Do they need to be a little smaller, and that would open them up to, to more places? Is that does that well does again? That make that's sense? That, uh, well, it makes sense to a certain degree. I mean, it makes sense to have shows in all in all size ranges, and it makes sense to uh, you know for for clubs and regional organizations to have smaller shows. It doesn't make. It would not make sense for the ENA because, as I said, the ENA has a huge staff of people. It has huge overhead, and therefore they need large shows to generate the cash. Uh, clearly, uh, and again, I know this upsets a lot of collectors, or it upsets even people who get elected to the board of governors. They don't like to acknowledge this, but it's the absolute truth. Your coin shows are your cash cows. And if you don't if you don't have those cash cows, you're not going to be able to provide the services, or you're not going to be able to pay the overhead that you have in these large organizations. So it really becomes a function of just how large the organization is and how much cash they need to generate. 
you could not generate sufficient cash for the ANA with a 150 show table. Yeah, you could but- not generate you could not generate enough cash for central states with a 100 show table. Okay. Well, you say, and I, I totally understand the the ANA. I wanted to, you know, from a central state standpoint, since that's the show you shepherd, no pun intended. Um, you know, is it is it feasible to scale it down a little bit? Maybe even, you know, is it two a year? And you know, I, I I'm I'm just I'm asking because I think somebody else might have that question, and it's a chance for okay. you. To- say, you know, it makes sense. It doesn't. Here's, we've explored that. We haven't explored that, whatever the case may be. Definitely. You know, at Central States, one of the things we will look at over the next uh, couple of years is the possibility of having more than one show, but not of the magnitude of the one that we have in Schomburg every April. We will consider the possibility of having some smaller shows spread across our region so that we can have them in, in, uh, in different locations. Now, the other factor that I, that I left unmentioned, and I shouldn't because it, it has become far more important in the last two years than ever before. It's always been important from the dealer perspective, and that's safety. Safety has become a primary issue. Uh, over the last few years, when we've seen the the uh, issues that have occurred in in many of our cities, and we also when we also hear the the uh, concerns about um, cutting back on the police forces or telling the police forces to stand back. Now, once again, I hope no one thinks I'm making a political commentary because I'm trying to avoid that. I'm, I'm I'm making a reality commentary that. If coin dealers don't think that police will will protect them in the convention center, they're not going to go to that city. And we've seen some very attractive cities fall into that category. Uh, and it's important to understand that when you talk about safety, that perception is more important than reality. I could hear many people in the Minneapolis-St. Paul region, for example, say, oh, well, gee, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, you'd be safe in our convention center if, if you if you came here. But I can tell you that if at Central States I announced that we were having a show in Minneapolis uh, next year, that I'd probably lose about half my dealers because whether it is safe or isn't safe isn't the issue. The perception is that it's not safe. And uh, the same thing's going to apply for places like Portland and cities like that that have traditionally been reasonably attractive venues so we have to factor that in so like in central states uh we have several cities that fall into categories that where there's greater concern now about safety than there would have been two years or five years ago there's there's concern i'm not i'm not going to mention names obviously but there's concern among dealers and i know we all talk about certain other venues around the country because uh you know, dealers recognize that if people will knock down the doors to steal a pair of shoes, uh, what could happen possibly when they see the signs hanging outside that says, uh, come in and see a billion dollars worth of uh, gold, silver, rare coins and currency. Uh, that makes you, the dealers very vulnerable and very concerned. You know, some listeners might say, oh, baloney, you're just blowing that up. Again, I'm not saying that it's going to happen. I'm, I'm saying that the concern that something like that could happen affects a lot of dealers in the way they, they view where they want to go uh, with, their, with their inventory. 
Awesome. Well, uh, thank you again for all that insight. Um, and I think, you know, it's exciting. We maybe uh, the coin world podcast broke a little news there that you're thinking about uh, having more than one show a year and going to other places. That's exciting. And um, certainly hope that folks who have some of these questions and concerns about the shows, give it a listen and, and at least consider uh, this perspective and your experience uh, several years uh, running shows on, on the logistics side and uh, certainly uh, the, the dealer experience as well. So thank you so much for all this time uh, today. Uh, we do appreciate it. You're welcome. And, and thank you, Jeff and Larry, for giving us the opportunity to, or me the opportunity to talk about our story. So thank you so much. And that was our interview with Larry Shepard talking about uh, the logistics and considerations behind putting on a, a coin show or a convention, as uh, he said. So, uh, you know, we're appreciative for his time. We hope that uh, you learned something. We thank you for your time. Uh, we ask uh, about an hour every week, and uh, this is going to be right there, an hour, hour, a few minutes. We do appreciate uh, you out there because you allow us to do this every week and uh, give us ideas, share uh concerns, criticisms, all that, uh, reach out to us and we will continue the dialogue uh, going forward every week. Indeed. And it's a great opportunity for all of us. We thank you for your past and continued support and look forward to uh, seeing your subscription on the uh, platforms in which you uh, listen to these podcasts. And don't forget, it's a limited time opportunity. You won't hear me talking about it next week, I'm sure. But this is the uh, Labor Day sale that's uh, on right now from Amos Advantage. Make sure that you check that out. There's a lot going on in the world. A lot of things are happening. And, uh, you know, a lot of positive things are, are happening. And good information can be found at our subscribe to Coin World. Check out our website at coinworld.com. And uh, we do appreciate the fact that you are uh, taking heart with this great hobby that we have. So. We invite you to join us again for the future episodes, but in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B H E R T E L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast.